ready? commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Pri Hagafin Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat ehilot osef elei 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat la'doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam, Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Suddenly articulate with a thousand. 
I won't bow to idols. And I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. And I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. Cause if the cross brings transformation, you can hang me there with you. Cause death is just a doorway unto resurrection life. And if I'll join you in the sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return with glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, my soul will be the same. We're singing, oh, Christ be magnified, just let his praise rise. Christ be magnified, he me. We're singing, oh, Christ be magnified on the altar of our lives. Christ be magnified in me. Keep me to your Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to the B'nai Shalom Erev Shabbat broadcast. This week, our Torah portion is the portion called Kitese. And we are still in the book of Exodus. And most of the subject at this point in the book of Exodus concerns the tabernacle, uh, the priesthood, the priestly garments, and those things. And like last week, we were talking about, well, the last two weeks, we've been talking about that. But if you'll recall, in the last two weeks, I've been hinting to you that there are two portions in the book of Exodus that will deal with another subject. And this is one of them where we're going to deal with the sin of the golden calf. Now, our portion actually begins with something that is associated with the temple and the tabernacle, but at first blush doesn't sound like it does. Kitese, which is in um, Exodus 30, beginning at verse 11, it says, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to them, and each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, that there may be no plague among them. And the way they would do a census of the children of Israel is each person, each man, uh, would give a half shekel. And I'm certain that most of you have heard about this, what the little half shekel is for. And that little silver coin would then be donated to the tent of meeting. It would go to the t service of the tabernacle 
to accomplish all the things that they needed to do, which could be the purchase of particular sacrifices or other substances for the business of the tabernacle and the temple. But there's two parts, and I want to mention this, about this half shekel. Um, when they did the census, they would gather a half shekel, but there was another time that they would gather up the half shekel, and that was when the men of Israel would go to war. And each man that was getting ready to go to war would pay a half shekel uh, to it. And there's a lot of commentary about what was that all about. And it has to do with the belief is that it has to do with that the men who were going to uh, war, of course, were going to go and kill the enemy soldiers. Uh, God, we serve a God of the living, not the God of the dead. And uh, God knew what was going to be the emotional impact on the Israeli soldiers sending them out to have to um, kill the enemy. Here today, uh, we recognize that our soldiers that we send out into combat, even though they are successful militarily, a lot of them come back and are highly disturbed and bothered by what they had to do and what they had to see, and we call it uh, PTSD uh, for it. Well, in the ancient times, they used to try to get an edge on this right from the beginning. They would have each man pay a half shekel, and the understanding is that this coin of redemption, this silver shekel, half shekel, was to, before God to lay before God that he is in need of redemption for the things that he's going to be doing. And so it was a, a request of God, God, redeem me out of this task that I have to do. Deliver me from the harm uh, that would come to me uh, from that, which is a very, very powerful uh, psychological step uh, for it to do. If, if we were a wise nation, and if I was the, the leader uh, of this nation, before I would ever dispatch military personnel into potential combat, I would try to find something like this for each one of them pays something and so that it's acknowledged that they are uh, having to do something that is our duty, but at the same time before God, that there was a sense of forgiveness and redemption from God for having to do it. And that's a powerful element of relieving the mental stresses and so forth for those types of situations. I just wanted to mention that very briefly because a lot of people are not real familiar with that part of the Torah in this regard. Now, the rest of the Torah portion goes on to talk about some of the final elements of the temple and the tabernacle, the building the laver of bronze that was used for the washing of the priests, and the other consumables that were used in the tabernacle and the temple service. The, for example, the anointing oil that had to be prepared. And then it goes into the making of the temple incense. And there's a number of chemicals and substances that were used for that. And both in the case of the anointing oil, which was more than just olive oil, and in the case of the incense, which was more than just something that would smell good, these particular recipes that were controlled by the priesthood, the exhortation is given and the commandment is given to us that no one is to replicate those. They are strictly for the use of the temple service. 
And so anytime you see anything representing itself to be the incense or the anointing oil of the temple, it's in direct violation of the Torah. It better be different in its recipe or else they are going to, they're contrary to the commandment here for it. Then it, our Torah portion uh, introduces to us the son of Hur. I pronounce it Bezalel. Some say Bezalel. Um, and he's the man who crafted uh, the main furnishings inside of the tabernacle. He's the one that created and did the artwork and, and the formation of the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah. And he was assisted by another man that helped him. And, and, and God designated him as to be the person because of his craftsmanship and his skill and his wisdom to be the person who's tasked uh, to create uh, all of those things that was for the tabernacle. The reason I mention this uh, to you is because there was a very special honor that was given to him to have that task. And it has to do with the fact that he's the son of her. Now, um, way back a long time ago, when Moses was first coming out, of Egypt with the children of Israel, they got into a, a battle uh, with the uh, Amalekites, as I recall. And the battle went well for Israel as long as Moses was able to keep his arms up in the air. Now, Aaron, his brother, was one of the men holding up his arm, and another brother was Hur. Hur and Aaron were the two men that kept Moses' arms up so that the battle would go well for the children of Israel. And in this particular portion, when we get to the sin of the golden calf, there's going to come a moment when Aaron will capitulate, give in to those that are wanting to build the golden calf, and will agree uh, to make the golden calf for them, when we get to that portion, I'll elaborate a little bit more about this man named Hur. It's not written in the scripture, but this is the traditional teaching that goes into that portion. The, uh, um, essentially, um, uh, God is, and the rest of this portion has to do with how the Lord's presence was being made known to the children of Israel. And then the day comes when God tells Moses, I want you to come up to the mountain. Now, the people understood that Moses was going up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, they were counting that, and essentially uh, uh, the count turned out to be totally inclusive. In other words, the day he went up didn't count as one of the 40 days. The day he's coming down off the mountain doesn't count as one of the 40 days. He was up there for a full 40 days, inclusive only to being on the mountain with the Lord. Well, according to the rabbis, they say that the children of Israel were doing the count. And suddenly, when the 40th day that they thought Moses should be back, one day going up, one day coming back, he didn't show. And so the children of Israel rose up and said, oh, Moses is dead. He's not with us anymore. We got to do something. And that's when this uprising took place. And all of a sudden, the, the people said, uh, we need to make a God uh, that will lead us. And so they went up to um, 
uh, Aaron uh, to insist that he make this golden calf uh, for them to make a god of gold for them. And of course, at first, Aaron uh, said no. And her, who was with Aaron, he was kind of a contemporary with him, he stood up and he insisted to the people that we're not going to do it. Well, according to the traditional teaching, these protesters and these guys that wanted to do this summarily slew her right before Aaron. I mean, they killed him right away. And part of the reason why um, Aaron capitulated was he was next. And so for the sake of his life, he, he agreed. And so they fashioned this golden calf, which didn't take him very long to do, and then they started partying. Well, when you know it, the time came for Moses to come down off the mountain with the two tablets that he had. And uh, it became clear that the children of Israel had uh, so quickly turned away from the Lord and now were worshiping the golden calf. And when Moses came down uh, from it, he was obviously very angry. He threw the tablets down broke them, uh, made a statement they don't deserve the Lord uh, in that process. And then there comes this moment when um, the uh, Moses goes to his brother and he says, what in the world happened? How, how did you let the people uh, get this far into what has, has gone on? And Aaron, I'm certain, you know, kind of repeats back, you know, the things that happened and how it transpired and how afraid he was. And then he begins to explain what was the process that he particularly was involved with, the creation of this golden calf. And so he says, well, I told them that they have to give me gold. So the first thing he was trying to do was get there to be a price to be paid by the people. Well, they were willing to pay the price. They were willing to give up their gold, you know, to do this. So then he said he formed it into a molten mass, you know, so he could do it. And the really cool part was he said, and really, I put all the gold in the fire, and all of a sudden, this golden calf popped up out of the fire. That he didn't form the fashion of it, it popped up out of the fire. Now, we don't believe there was a miracle there, and the thing just popped up out of the fire. We believed it was formed and fashioned and so forth, and Aaron was probably a part of it. But his defense against Moses is to say, hey, it just popped up out of the fire, which to me is funny and goofy. Uh, I'm intending, when we get into the kingdom, to have a conversation with Aaron about that, uh, about that little goofy statement that he made there, uh, because that strikes me as humorous and attempt to rationalize and attempt to duck back from his responsibilities for it. In any case, the story goes on how Moses assembles a number of Levites, Three thousand, or a bunch of Levites join with them. They put swords in their hand and they go out and they slay all of the Israelites who participated in the formation of the golden calf and who were relishing in it, uh, parading around, dancing before it, making sacrifices to it, and so forth. And three thousand sons of Israel were slain on that day. And the stage is now set, since the tablets were broken, that Moses appeals back to God and says, would, would you please not judge us? Would, would we, uh, 
could we please get back on track, so to speak? And in his way of requesting that of God, Moses kind of personally puts himself out there and he says to the Lord, I really want to learn about you. I, I really want to know you. I want to see your glory. And, uh, the, uh, and the Lord then instructs uh, Moses to go get some stone and cut out uh, a couple of new tablets and bring them up to the mountain and that he will make the tablets for him again. And so he goes up, and one of the things that transpires is Moses' desire to see the glory of God. And, of course, God says to him that it's not possible for him to see the glory of God, but that he could see the backside of him, but he can't see his face. And so we have the story of where Moses is put into a stone, a cleft of a rock. It's kind of a split in the rock, and he's put physically into it, so he's blocked all around him except for one way that he can see. And God walks up to him, and he puts his hand in front of Moses' face where he can't see uh, the front of God, and then he turns in such a way and brings his hand down to where Moses is able to see uh, God from the backside. And at that point, God then speaks to Moses, meeting his request about, I want to know your glory. I, I, I want to learn from you. And God makes a fascinating statement. In fact, I want to read it to you. This is in chapter 34, and at verses um, uh, 6 and 7, this is what God says about God. Now, I want you to take note of that. Uh, there's lots of things in the Bible to learn about God. But when God speaks and says, this is who I am, I would submit to you in your study of theology that these words should be at the forefront of your thinking and understanding of God. This is directly from God's mouth. Just like the Ten Commandments were directly from him to all of us, this is a direct statement from God describing himself. Very powerful. Let me read it for you. Uh, chapter 34, verses 6, beginning at verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Now, this passage of Scripture is referred to by Torah teachers as the 13 attributes of God. There are 13 distinct elements that God used in describing himself. Now, go back into your scripture and count. And most of you are only going to find 10. You'll see 10 attributes. But I said there were 13 attributes. 
And you'll look perplexed and you'll say, how do you say there's 13 attributes when I can only count 10? And the problem is the very first words that God uses. The Lord, the Lord God are the first three attributes. There are three words used to describe God. Each one of those has an attribute. And they have to do with God's mercy, His grace, and His justice. And the term God has to do, Elohim, has to do with justice. But Adonai and Yahweh have to do with mercy and redemption. And a lot of people don't recognize quite what was working here. Now, <clears throat> let's say that you're with me and, and uh, uh, you want to know about me. And so I'm going to do something similar. I'm going to, I'm going to take you up to this place and I'm going to park you in a, in a particular chair. And I uh, say, no, no, I'll, I'll tell you about myself. And I walk up to you, I make it kind of dramatic, and I put my hand in front of your face, and I stand there and, and in front of you. And then I start describing myself uh, to you. And you sit there listening. Let me see if I can come up with a description. Uh, I am Monty Judah. I'm a man. And I continue on from there telling you who I am. What is the difference between what I just did versus what we just read in the scripture. I will tell you what it is. I spoke in the first person. When God spoke to Moses, he spoke in the third person. He didn't say I. He refers to the Lord God. And the reason why he did is because God has parts. And one part is speaking, he's looking to the other parts, and he's going to speak third person about the Lord. He's not going to say I, he's going to, say, he's going to refer to the Lord God. One person spoke within the parts of God and referred to the other two. This is completely consistent with how God presents himself throughout the scripture. He always presents himself in a plural form, a multi-part form, not an absolute one. If he had been an absolute one, the language should say, I. It didn't. It spoke in the third person. That's a very powerful element to understand about God as he describes himself to us. And my suggestion, as I've said to you before, is that we should accept the way God describes himself and stop with theology trying to describe God some, somehow else in some other terms uh, with it and having to do with it. Now, from there, Moses, upon being confronted with God in this very direct way, he responds in this following way. Again, back to uh, Exodus 34. He says the following to him, verse 9, And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, uh, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are obstinate, and do thou pardon our iniquity, our sin, and take us as thine own possession. You know what that is? That's called the sinner's prayer. Every one of us, 
when we are confronted with God and we need to make a decision with God, there's very simple elements that do so with it. One, we come before God and we repent. We ask for forgiveness. We ask to be pardoned. And then we invite God to come in and be a part of our life, to be a part of what our life is about, and so that we can be a part of God's family and a part of what he is doing. That's the sinner's prayer. Moses just prayed the sinner's prayer. By the way, you will not find this prayer in the New Testament. You know, where everybody in the New Testament says, oh, you got to accept the Lord and so forth. There's no verse in the New Testament that does this. The sinner's prayer comes from the Torah. It comes from Mount Sinai. It comes from Moses. That's where we get the example of this. So this business of some of my Christian friends thinking you have a new novel uh, uh, sort of understanding of God's relationship with man and that by accepting Jesus in the New Testament is completely different than what God has done before, you are sadly mistaken. You have no idea what is the basis of the relationship of entering into covenant with God and receiving forgiveness of sin. You give lip service to what Yeshua did with no understanding of how God set these precedents before with his people. I just wanted to make sure that we all had that straight. Now, having used a lot of time to talk about our Torah portion, let's quickly look at what the Hoff Torah portion is about. To do that, we need to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, one of my favorite chapters in the Tanakh. It's the story of Elijah when he confronts King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who were following the prophets of Baal. And the challenge, the gauntlet is thrown down to the prophets of Baal to meet on, uh, at uh, Mount Carmel, up on top of the mountain, and for the prophets of Baal to build, to bring two bullocks, and for them to prepare a bullock, and to ask for Baal to send fire down and consume the bullock, and that uh, Elijah will set up a bullock and he'll call for God to send down and consume it too. And the challenge is thrown down of which the prophets of Baal and Jezebel and King Ahab accept. Yes. And, and the, thing, the key thing that Elijah is doing in this is choose who is your God. Make that clear decision. Who's your God? And that's the reason why this portion goes back to the story of the golden uh, calf. The children of Israel have a choice. Do you want to listen to the God who has fire come down on the mountain and speaks to us? Or do you want to follow after this golden calf thing that was made by you guys and call that your God? Do you want to follow a man-made religion? Or did you want to actually have faith in a God that comes down from heaven onto a mountain. So Elijah throws down the gauntlet and says the same thing. He says, okay, well, you prophets of Baal, you get your calf out, and let's see, let's see what your Baal can do. We're going to be on top of this mountain. I'm going to ask for God to send fire down on this mountain, just like he did on Mount Sinai. Well, you know the story. They get it all going, 
and the prophets of Baal are out there crying and weeping and, and calling for Baal to send fire down and consume the sacrifice. There's no fire and they'll, to, to burn it up and start a fire and so forth. Well, about noontime, why, uh, Elijah goes into heckling mode. Oh, you need to shout louder. You know, he's probably up there and can't hear you. And he said, oh, uh, he's probably sleeping. You guys need to wake him up. Maybe he's on a journey and can't, isn't around, you know, and, and you need to call him from where he's at on his journey so he can come back and prove who he is. I mean, he really gave it to him. And it got pretty serious. Well, come about 3 o'clock after the prophets of Baal have finally reverted to going around cutting themselves and almost slaughtering themselves in front of everybody, bloods everywhere, nothing has happened. So Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. And so he constructs an altar with stones, assembles the stones together. He then gets the pyre and he sets it up the wood that would be for it. And he puts the bull up on it. And then he has them dig a trench around this thing. And then he calls for these large jars of water to be poured all over the top of the sacrifice, soaking the wood down the stones and into this trench thing, and has them do that three times to the point where the trench is now filled up with the water, and this thing is completely drenched. There is everything is wet about this altar. And in a flash of a moment, God calls for, uh, Elijah rather, calls for God to show his glory and to prove once and for all he is the God of Israel. Well, the fire came down. <laughs> Goodbye, bull. Goodbye, wood. Goodbye, stones. And goodbye, all the water that was present. The only, I think the only thing that was left there was a, a smoking hole in the ground. And at that point, the people rose up and they slew the prophets of Baal. So the comparison of this, of this Haftor portion back to our Torah portion is God coming down on the mountain with a fire, declaring he is the Lord, but the people are, are not making the correct decision. And to, quite honestly, this is the question for every generation, and it's even the question for us. We have all of this evidence in Scripture about who this God is, what he has done in the past, what we think of him. And we still have to make a decision. Will we serve that God, or will we be distracted by other events and either create a God of our own or follow after some other false God or some other voice instead of the voice of God. And we, we have to make a decision. Who's God and who are we going to follow after? So my lesson for you, this Shabbat, follows what Moses said and what Yeshua said and what Elijah said. Choose the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Choose the God of Israel. He's the one true God, not any of the others. That's our Torah portion for this week. Shabbat Shalom. 
If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, to chapter 5. Hold your finger there at verse 16, where our Brit Hadashah reading for this week will begin. And as you open the Scripture, let me turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time and opportunity once again to uh, dig into Your Word and Your instruction. May it come alive and be powerful. Father, open our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears to hear and to see what You would have us to learn this week. Father, I pray that uh, this teaching would be an encouragement, strengthening everyone in their most holy faith as we once again dig into the bread bread of life that is Your Word. So we bless You and thank You. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Our Torah portion is Kitisa, which uh, is a continuation once again of Moses receiving instructions on the building of the tabernacle, and that we have gone through the main elements of the tabernacle, the structure of the tabernacle, the ordination of the high priest and the priesthood, and now we come to some of the last couple of things that we are going to be building and constructing in the tabernacle. But this Torah portion is probably more well known for being the story by which after God has given all of these commandments and these instructions, we then have the sin of the golden calf. When the children of Israel, when they turned away and rejected the Lord, they, they, they turned to other gods, another idol that they declared to be yod heh vav they, they declared him to this statue to be God, the one that delivered them out of Egypt. And it was a grave sin for a number of the children of Israel, so much so that then Moses has to plead with the Lord for him to stay with the children of Israel. So with our Torah portion here, how do we dig into some of the, the symbolism, the principles of what we want to teach from the Torah portion from some of the New Testament passages? Um, with a couple of things that I do want to point out, a couple of highlights um, that I love bringing out, the fact that the instruction to build all of these things was given to Moses and then was also calling the artisans of the tabernacle to be the ones who actually build, construct, sculpt, weave, all of these various different things. But he emphasized at the end of all of this instruction to keep the Sabbath. That even though the people, if they were bringing, if Moses was coming down from the mountain with all the blueprints and the designs and the, the schematics on how to build the, the tent and the tabernacle of God, we still have a reiterant, a um, uh, rereading of the law according to the Sabbath of how to, when we are to rest. Because this is what was going to happen. He was going to come down with all of this instruction and then people were going to be zealous to build these things. Let's do it. Let's construct this. Let's mold it. Let's collect the gold. Let's do all these things because it was going to be a very special camp-wide, community-wide effort. But God iterated, once again, you are to keep my Sabbath. This is a perpetual covenant that He has established since the beginning of time that even though you might be zealous to build the house of God, this is still a perpetual commandment to keep the Sabbath. I'm reminded of the passage in Matthew 12, 12, where it says that it is not wrong to do good on the Sabbath. That yes, it's like that, that we want to always do good on the Sabbath in the case of the Messiah, healing on the Sabbath, and that it is not wrong to do good on the Sabbath. However, once again, the Lord is iterating the keeping of this perpetual covenant. It is a sign between God and the children of Israel. And it is a sign and a symbol. And the, the Messiah himself had his own customs on the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue. He rested on the Sabbath day. 
Now, he obviously still looked for opportunities to do good. However, in the construction of this tabernacle, that was still not, that this is not one of these things that it's like, oh, that God was going to suspend the Sabbath for the building of the tabernacle. But it's something that we always need to remember that we worship the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's one of the things why we have always emphasized here with this ministry and with this Arab Shabbat broadcast that we keep and celebrate the Sabbath. All right. Now digging into passage, I had you flip to Galatians chapter 5, where we have the instruction to do with the fruits of the Spirit, where Paul is uh, speaking to the Galatians, and he gives us two lists here at the end of chapter 5 in Galatians that are very specific as to a big list of things to avoid and a list of things that you should, if you have the Spirit of God inside you, these are fruits that you should, that, that should be uh, examples that, and evidences that the Spirit of God is inside of you. The reason why I bring us to this passage here is because what initiated the sin of the golden calf. See, the children of Israel were sitting at the base of that mountain, and they were sitting and they were waiting for Moses to return. Moses, who had gone up onto the, into the, uh, onto the mountain, into the fire, and then they're sitting around and they don't know what has become of Moses. They could not wait. They did not know how long he was going to be there. So they, So the people of Israel rose up, turned to Aaron and said, make us a God. They, the, the, it completely spiraled into complete and utter idolatry amongst the children of Israel in the wilderness because they couldn't wait for Moses to return. They did not have the Spirit of God inside of them. The Spirit of God, when, it, when, when it's inside somebody, it's described also in our Torah portion that uh, talking about Bezalel and Aholiab, one of some of the artisans of the tabernacle, that the Spirit of God was filled inside of them. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. We're going to talk about uh, a little bit more about their names. But the Spirit of God was inside them when they had the creativity to craft the tabernacle. The people who worshiped the golden calf and committed this idolatry they did not have the Spirit of God inside of them. I'll point out one of the super obvious ones that they did not have. You might have already figured it out from the way I described it. They did not have the patience to wait for Moses. The long-suffering, as some Bible versions say, is a fruit of the Spirit to wait on the Lord. We're talking about the, the patience needed like Abraham had. That was when he was promised that he was going to have a son and that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he had to wait 25 years before he even had that son to even prove out the idea that he was even going to have any seed. So the patience needed is absolutely necessary when it comes to if you have the Spirit of God inside of me. Now let me read here because this passage starts with the list of works of the flesh. These are all things that you can, if you've ever pictured the sin of the golden calf, the things that they did, the, the, the marrying, giving in marriage, you, you sometimes could also think of like the way it was in the days of Noah prior to the flood, that this was a, where the, the congregation of Israel spiraled into this sin. Now, when it's all said and done, 3,000 people of the children of Israel died because of this sin. It's not well understood as if it was ju absolutely just the 3,000 or it was more than that, but it was the ones who specifically sacrificed to the golden calf 
were the ones that died, and that was of the 3,000. But ultimately, the responsibility of the entire congregation all fell on the fact that this sin took place. Everyone had to reap the consequences of this sin, and it was because works of the flesh prevailed over the Spirit of God. Let me read here now, Galatians 5, starting at verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. As you sit there and you read through that list, it's like, man, that's a, that's a pretty scathing list of, of things that are works of the flesh. That when people fall into the, this sort of this sin, this debauchery, whether it's lewdness, whether it's uh, sexual immorality, but then it also get, digs into the, the first couple that you might look at, you might say, oh, I'm good there. Oh, I'm good there. Uh, fornication. No, no, no. I don't do sorcery. No, I don't practice sorcery. Once it starts hitting things like hatred, it's like, hmm, well, yeah, sometimes we hate our brother. Jealousy. Sometimes we're, we're, we, we get jealous. We want something that somebody else has. Outbursts of wrath. This is the one that's really tough when people, you know, some people joke about having anger management issues and having a short temper. But ultimately, that is a, that is a symptom and a work of the flesh that if somebody has the spirit inside of them, they will not break out in this wrathful, angry, uh, angry tones. These, this is a work of the flesh, not a work of the Spirit. And all of these things that, that all took place. When, when we go back to the sin of the golden calf, you see them that when they created it, they tore the earrings out of their wives' ears. And there was, I don't know what, what would cause a husband to ca tr cause that harm to his wife, but it's almost like there was this, like, this jealousy or this nastiness to take the gold maybe before she even was willing to give it if, they, if she was in that way. And that they were so, they had these amb selfish ambition to create this God that it spiraled out of control and it was complete idolatry, which was in that list as well. Murders. This is the one that's, that's reading a little bit between the lines, but, but Jewish commentaries, many of them, state this. <clears throat> if you remember, when Moses went back up to the mountain, he left Aaron and he left another guy in charge, a man by the name of Hur. And he left them and said, look, if you got any issues or whatever, while I'm on the mountain, go to Aaron and go to Hur. If they, they'll help you with anything. And that's basically before the instructions for the tabernacle. Um, that's when 
uh, that's what he said. That was the last thing that he said to the children of Israel. Well, we never hear of Hur's name ever again in all of Scripture after that time. There's a belief, and there's a whether it's tradition passed down through the oral tradition or, or the, the stories that, that have been passed along that aren't recorded for us here in Scripture, but the stories are this, is that her actually was, that, that they went to her to build the, the, the idol and the golden calf, and that he refused to do it, and they then murdered him. They then turned to Aaron and said, Aaron, you build the golden calf. And while he turns and he looks and he sees his friend and his, the, the man that he was worked side by side, this was the guy that was helping to hold Moses' arms up on the mountain when they were fighting the Amalek. This guy that he had worked side by side with, the, as the story goes, they murdered him and then turned to Aaron and said, you make us the golden calf. And Aaron, out of fear for his life, began to comply and started to create the golden calf. Now, one question might be, if that truly is what happened, why did Moses not record it? Or is it something for us to discover and to realize to, to, when, you, when you learn something like that, you realize the level of sin that the children of Israel were falling into? This was not just idolatry. This was not just, you know, you, 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 got, a, you got a statue there and then you say, hey, that's a god. I mean, they started doing, making sacrifices to this thing. They were, they were ripping earrings out of people's ear. They were causing harm and blood and all these things to worship this. And it was spiraling out of control into complete lists of acts and works of the flesh, as Paul's describing for us here in Galatians. This is the description of the golden calf. This is why the sin was so great. And this is where the, the, they, and you can see from the very beginning, as I pointed out, they did not have the Spirit of God inside of them. Self-control, gentleness, peace, patience, none of that is present in, the, in our story about the golden calf. It's just not there. And so the Spirit of God was not there. The Spirit of God had not come upon the people. They were not being led by the Spirit of God. So this is sort of the, the thing we have to realize that if we don't present the fruits of the Spirit in our own lives, then what are we presenting to our fellow brother? How do we act with one another? I gave a teaching a little, uh, not that long ago where I, I brought out this passage, and I was pointing out that these lists are not that great for us as far as those that are in the body of faith, whether it is the Christian church or Judaism or in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement. That we seem to uh, we uh, we see plenty of dissensions, envy amongst one another, and wraths of anger when when somebody doesn't uh, doesn't agree with us on Facebook, and you see people just just break out in 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 anger and wrath, and it's like this list doesn't bode well for your average body of believers. We lack the the patience to 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 to, to um, wait for what the Lord is doing. This is the other thing, and this is also another parallel. Moses, in, in our whole story, and, and Moses delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, Moses is the Messiah-like figure. Just like Joseph before him, Moses embodies this idea of the Messiah, who was the Savior that went and saved the children of Israel out of the slavery of sin, like the Messiah did, saving us out of the, sla the slavery, sorry, Moses delivering the children of Israel the slavery of Egypt, and Yeshua delivering us from the slavery of sin. 
And when you think about it, this, that this is what they were doing. They were waiting for their Savior to return down from the mountain. Okay? They were at the mountain. Moses said he was going to do, if you got any issues, go talk to these men here, and I'm going to go up on the mountain to be with the Lord. I'm going to ascend. And then they don't know when he's coming back. So they start to get angry, frustrated, impatient, spirals all the way out into idolatry. Now, if, if you're starting to read between the lines here, this is what some people have done with the entire idea and the concept of the second coming of the Messiah. Because the Messiah hasn't returned yet. Though there's been many predictions that the Messiah could return, would return at such and such time, going back 30, 40 years, there's been plenty of people trying to predict exactly when the Messiah is going to come. And here we are sitting in 2020, and He hasn't returned yet. So what are we to do when left to our own devices, waiting on the Messiah to come back down and, and descend from where He is in the presence of God? Well, may I caution you that we don't spiral into idolatry the way the children of Israel did. Some people do. Some people have given up the faith because the Messiah hasn't come back yet. Some people have, 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 got, have gotten angry with God because... It's like, Lord, you were supposed to come back now. I was supposed to be in the kingdom by now, and you haven't returned yet. We must not fall into that pitfall. We must not uh, succumb to the temptations and the works of the flesh with selfish ambitions and envies and strifes and dissensions and all this anger to then where it spirals into, like I said, that first part of that list, yeah, we're good sometimes when it comes to sorcery, idolatry, uh, adultery. Mm. The problem is, is that when you get too impatient, too frustrated, that's when you fall short. That's when you actually fall into the, the, the temptation to do some of these, even these worse things on this list as we would perceive certain ones of these to be worse than others. So that is my caution to all of us, all believers in the faith. Do not grow impatient that the Lord has not returned yet, or the Lord hasn't done something in your life. When many of us walk with the feeling and the thought that the Lord has promised us certain things, or we feel like the Lord's spoken to us before that one day you're going to be doing this and this, and, that, and then when it hasn't happened yet, you're, one, you're like, Lord, are you even there? Did you hear my prayer? Did I hear, did I hear you wrong? What's going on? You get angry, and it's like, all of these things are cautions to all believers have the patience to wait on the Lord. He is long-suffering. He is gracious to us for all the mistakes and sins that we've committed in our lives. We need to return that same graciousness, long-suffering, kindness, uh, gentleness, self-control as we wait for the Lord to continue to reveal Himself and reveal His will for the people, for the world, for our lives, for when He will return and will come and clean up the world that we have. We're all waiting for those things, but may we not, that's the one thing, if we can learn one thing from the story of the golden calf, let that be what we learn. Now, in the case of them sacrificing to idols, we have a passage here that's traditional for uh, this Torah portion. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 8, we have more of this, this description of being consumed and with, with idolatry and various things. So if you would now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8, 
And uh, let's go ahead and start at verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Once again, this is that contrast between fruits of the Spirit, envies puffing up, and then love and patience is the, we're, we're contrasting some of the same things here. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, and he knows nothing yet as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the, the eating of things offered to idols. See, this is what the children of Israel did with the golden calf. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom, all, of whom are all things, and that we for Him and one Lord, Yeshua Messiah, through wisdom, through whom all, are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not condemn us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak, for if anyone sees you who, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, then I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Very interesting, <coughs> excuse me, very interesting words that are being described here about the meat being sacrificed to an idol, and that when you have the knowledge, when you've come into the knowledge of what is right, what is wrong, you then have the responsibility to carry yourself in a certain way, to a certain level, to a certain standard. And that when certain things that perhaps liberties have been afforded to you, you still do not fall into those temptations because you might cause a fellow brother to stumble, lest they see you, lest they, someone who is weak in their conscience, people who are, who don't have, you know, there's people you might describe that they don't have much of a backbone or they, they don't uh, have good moral standing or they, um, they don't have any integrity because they, they just kind of go with the flow. There's lots of people out there like that. And we who are followers, believers in God, we have to understand the higher standard that we are held to as believers, as knowing the knowledge of these things. This is, uh, again, th this is sort of like what, what happened to Israel is this example for us, for us to learn from their mistakes. If we commit the same mistakes... Are we just the same or are we actually possibly even worse than they were because we had the instruction and the knowledge of what they did? After I've told you that it's like the, the, this lack of patience is what spiraled out into, into idolatry, then for you having known that, 
then when there's some other situation where you become impatient and you, you, the Spirit of God isn't the one leading you and guiding your actions and your words and, and everything that you do, then it's like you now have the foreknowledge of where that can take you. Ignorance is, or, you know, there might be those that are ignorant or that weak in their conscience that, that, you know, struggle with these things. But once you have the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, there's a higher standard to be followed. And that we need to make sure we are never causing our fellow brother to stumble. And that's, of course, what the ones, the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, appropriately named the children of Israel, were immature in their spiritual walk and in their faith. And they were weak and they were, they were, they were influenced by this, this lust of the flesh, this temptation to, to create something that they can see and to sacrifice uh, meat and idols and all these different things like that. You got to remember, Moses was on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle that they was going to come down and then they were going to build an altar and they were going to sacrifice and people were going to eat meat and sacrifices that were given to the one true God. They couldn't wait. They wanted meat right away. They wanted to make that, those sacrifices, those things. That, that, that this was an understanding of how to worship God as you make sacrifices to God. And yet this system in place had not been established yet. Moses was up on the mountain receiving the instructions on how to establish proper sacrifices before the Lord, and they couldn't wait. This is the pitfall that we all fall into, that we have to be mindful sometimes of idolatry that is around us. Now, one of the things that I always found interesting about this story in The Sin of the Golden Calf is that the Levites, they took swords after Moses came down from the mountain. He broke the tablets. He caused the, the people to, to drink the water, the bitter waters. They ground up the, the, the gold of the calf, made the people drink it. And then Levites went out and slew 3,000 3, sons of Israel who had made sacrifice to the golden calf. And there's some theories out there that the drinking of those bitter waters actually caused a physical reaction in the people that committed that, that sin. So the Levites knew who to slay. This, of course, connects to Numbers chapter 5, the instructions for the bitter waters and those that have committed for the jealous husband and the wife that's committed adultery, which literally is what has happened here, where you have a jealous God and Israel, his bride, has committed adultery, idolatry in this case. <clears throat> of the men that died in the sin of the golden calf, we don't know who they are. We don't know what their names are. They're not mentioned by name exactly who it is that, that, that died. In, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Aviram were all rolled into the story, the movie, The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille with Charlton Heston. And they kind of rolled the, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Aviram into the sin of the golden calf in that story. Completely false. Uh, it took some creative liberties there. The, the rebellion of Korah, that takes place way later. Korah, I believe, was one of the guys, at least one rank, one rank down from Moses and Aaron, that was one of the Levites that took swords and went and slew the children of Israel. He was one of the men that enacted the justice upon the men that committed this sin. Korah's sin was bad, but at least his name wasn't blotted out from any annals of history. The people who committed this sin, 3,000 sons of Israel, no idea who they are. Well, that takes me to my next passage here in the New Testament. If you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Talking about the great white throne judgment. Talking about the, the, what, is, what is being 
described at the end of the age of the thing that when, when somebody has committed grave sin, grave sin, and that, they, that, that when, when God enacts His judgment, a judgment that only He can pass, or that he, only a judgment He can give, that we men, we're flawed, we don't make these judgments. God will make this judgment, but this final judgment is, is uh, scathing, to say the least. Here at verse 11 of Revelation 20, let's go ahead and read this uh, couple of verses here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and death and Hades delivered up dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This concept of the book of life, it actually pops up in several other passages of Scripture. And it's this idea, the idea is this, is that they talk about how someone's name is written in this book of life. And that if your name is in the book of life, then you are in the kingdom. You're in good standing with the Lord. In fact, there's this idea or this concept that God has written everyone into the book of life. The key is that you need to do and you need to live your life accordingly to where your name does not get blotted out of the book of life. That's the case with these children of Israel. Remember, this is before any census ever got taken of the children of Israel in the world, back talking about in the wilderness again. Back in the wilderness, they took a census. They, the people of Israel were, were counted. They, they, they were numbered. They were, we, we knew everybody had a place and a purpose and we created all the order in the book of numbers and all of this structure and, and everybody was counted to be a part of Israel when they took half shekel and everybody was counted to, to be somebody, to be a part of Israel. These ones that died in the sin of the golden calf never made it that far. They may have been there in the book of life, ready there, ready to, to, to receive all the blessings that God was going to give, yet they committed a sin that caused their name to be blotted out of the book of life. Now, we could get into a, all kinds of uh, debates and discussions about what it is, final judgment, what is the lake of fire, um, what's the true nature of heaven and hell and the kingdom and, and all these things. And we could, we could get into this. And these are conversations that, uh, that seem to have no end because nobody really knows the, the, the true answer. This is my opinion on, on the whole matter is this, is that there is one sin that the Messiah describes as the unforgivable sin. And that sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that that is considered by, as the Messiah said, the unforgivable sin. What is ultimately blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What it is, is that is utterly despising, detesting the power of God, causing it to, to, to think or to believe that it's, it has no value, that it's not worth anything. And that is ultimately what causes anyone to not be in the presence of God and that is rejecting God. We could talk about all the kinds of other sins that 
People have committed over time. We, we could talk about, you know, the, the sins that are outlined in Torah. And we human beings like to rate one sin higher than another, to think one to be worse than, 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 than another. And we might look and see, well, because they commit that kind of sin, then they're not going to be in the kingdom because that's a terrible sin that they did. I'm also a sinner, but I didn't do something that bad, right? Mm, really hard to ever put that list and to, to gauge that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is the ultimate judge of all of those things. Ultimately, though, there is enough in this scripture that can point to the fact and the idea that some people are destined for eternal judgment, that they have committed a sin that has blotted their name out from the book of life because they have outright and fully rejected God. This is what it is to commit idolatry to reject God entirely after you've already received the knowledge of the power of God and you reject Him entirely. That is the sin, and that would cause somebody to be blotted out of the book of life. And this is one of those things where I I, I still, as a person, human being, God's the ultimate judge for what the eternal destination of those uh, 3,000 sons of Israel, where they are, whether they're in the kingdom or not. God's the ultimate judge on all of those things. But when you get this sense or this idea that ultimately God's judgments are all about the, uh, a name being blotted out from, from, from His book of life, declaring you to be in the family of God, a part of God, that we, have, we, we can sit here and we're like, okay, we, this is when we can do some self-examination and say, there are some of these sins that we absolutely have to avoid. But again, all of these things, it spirals out of control. It starts with the little things. It starts with the envy. It starts with the jealousies. It starts with the the little strifes and the dissensions. Then it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. This is why all the sins that are listed are so important for us to follow. This isn't for us to say, oh, then we can just uh, do whatever we want as far as any of the other laws and Torah. Um, I won't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. I won't dare do that. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take liberties with everything else that, that I want to do. No, the, the problem is, is that the liberties being taken with the little things, if you're not faithful with the little, then you definitely won't be faithful with much, and you will spiral yourself all the way into eternal damnation. It starts with the little things starts with the little sins. This is what we can learn from the sin of the golden calf. And this is the, the, the judgment of God stating exactly what He will do, and He will judge according to the works of those that, of what they did. Whether it's at the end of the age, we're obviously talking about in the book of Revelation, those that align themselves with the Antichrist and the beast. But we ultimately, without true knowledge of what the interpretation of these words mean, we have to continue to hold ourselves to a certain higher standard by which we as believers in God walk uprightly before Him, keeping all of the commandments so as we to not fall into the same mistake and the same temptations that the children of Israel did before us. So let that be something that we can ponder on on this Sabbath and let us do some of that self-reflection and make sure we clean up some of those little things so as to not commit greater sins and iniquities. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this teaching, this instruction, for the portion of Kitisa, 
Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our most holy faith. Father, lead us not into temptation, Lord. Though our flesh cries out and wars against your spirit, Lord, to commit sins and terrible things, Father, may you keep us safe and protect us from those pitfalls and those things that would cause great harm, not only to us, but to our entire communities and families around us when sin consumes us. So, Father, I pray that you would protect us, that you would guard our ears and our eyes, Lord, for everything that we might hear and see. Guard our mouth, Lord, for you say that it's not what come, that goes into one's mouth, but what comes out is what defiles us, Lord. And so, Father, always guard our lips, our, mouth, our mouths, our tongues, Lord, that we do not say something that is blaspheming to you, something that we would regret or hurtful to one another. May you always guard us and protect us from anything that might do us harm, even our own devices, Lord. Protect our hearts and minds, Lord, for anything, any spirit that might come into our lives and consume us, Lord. May we set aside our personal spirits, Lord, and invite your Holy Spirit into our life in all things and in all situations. We love you, bless you, and thank you. We thank you once again for this Sabbath day, the day of rest. We give you all the honor, the glory, the praise in this place. In your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.